Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Taking Command of the Treatment of ESA Refractory Transfusion-Dependent Low-Risk MDS, is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Paul Dagramji. This is Sammy on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Paul Dagramji. I'm joined today by Dr. Rami Kamrakji and P.A. Alan Platt to discuss ESA refractory low-risk MDS. Hello, it's really a pleasure to join you as well. Glad to be here. And we're here to discuss ESA refractory low-risk MDS. So let's begin. P.A. Platt, to begin our session, can you first describe the diagnosis of anemia and when to refer a patient to a hematology specialist? Absolutely. It's very common in primary care, like 20% of your adult patients are anemic. Usually that's picked up on a routine CBC when you're doing a physical exam. However, people can present with non-vertigo, dizziness, weakness, fatigue, and those should all be indicators to check for anemia. On physical exam, you want to check the vital signs. If they're unstable, that person needs to go to a hospital base where they can be worked up and maybe even be typed and crossed for blood transfusion. But if somebody's stable, you can use peripheral tests to make pretty much 90% of the diagnosis. So start with a CBC with a white cell differential. You'll need a peripheral blood smear. You definitely want a reticulocyte count that's corrected, a metabolic profile, and a urinalysis. Based on that, it's going to guide your whole workup. I have a little flow chart that will guide you based on the results that you just obtained from those basic labs. And if you do see a low white count and either or a low platelet count with anemia, that should be a pretty much referred to hematology immediately, something drawing at the bone marrow level. However, if that's not present, you just have a pure anemia, you want to go on the reticulocyte count. Once it's corrected, if it's under two, the bone marrow is not producing. It's a production problem. If it's over two, you're losing blood, either for bleeding or hemolysis. And there's total workups for pursuing that. If it's a low production anemia, the next step is to look at your CBC and look at the size of the red cells. That's MCV, mean corpuscular volume, microcytic, normocytic, or macrocytic. And each of those should have targeted tests to make the diagnosis. For the microcytic chain, you want to look at iron studies primarily. Iron would be the most common. And the, basically, the ferritin level tells you what your storehouse iron is. You also want to consider electrophoresis looking for thalassemia, and a lead level looking for lead toxicity, and a C-reactive protein looking for inflammation. Those are the four big differentials for microcytic. For normocytic, you're going to look at your metabolic profile because kidney disease, liver disease are all big in this category with low EPO from the kidney if it's renal failure. Get a TSH and also a CRP looking for inflammation. For macrocytic, you definitely want to get a B12 and a RBC folate level to check for B12 and folate deficiency. That's going to be your most common in that category. If you can't figure it out with these peripheral tests, then basically you're going to send your patient to hematology because the next step is a bone marrow biopsy if you can't figure it out with the peripheral tests. So the microcytic differential, thalassemia, iron deficiency, chronic inflammation, and sideroblastic, which is uh, rule out lead toxicity first, but that may be MDS. 
or the normocytic side if you can't figure it out with a peripheral test again you're referring to hematology for the macrocytic if it's not b12 or folate deficiency uh, you're definitely going to send the patient to hematology and their uh, next step will be a bone marrow biopsy Hemolytic workup, again, that's pretty much a hematology referral unless you have just G6PD deficiency, which would be picked up on a Heinz body stain, and that would be just removing the offending agent. All right. Well, low-risk bilobus dysplastic syndrome, or LRMDS, is an acquired bone marrow disorder that manifests with symptomatic anemia. Erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, or ESAs, are the first-line treatment but not all patients with LRMDS respond to ESAs, and many become refractory to ESAs. Dr. Karakji, would you expand on the utility of ESAs and identification of ESA failure? Absolutely, thank you. So I think just to set the background, to summarize the scope of the problem, myelodysplastic syndromes are the most common myeloid neoplasm we deal with. It's one of the top five causes of anemia in elderly, as stated. And majority of the patients are actually what we call a lower risk MDS, which means less likelihood to progress to acute myeloid leukemia. However, majority of those patients, unfortunately, will die from complications related to the disease, anemia, and its complications. Anemia is the most common cytopenia we encounter in lower risk MDS. Almost 90% of the patients are anemic at time of diagnosis. And over time, more than half of the patients will become transfusion-dependent, needing blood transfusions every two weeks or sometimes more often. Isolated thrombocytopenia or neutropenia are less common to encounter. However, their coexistence sometimes dictates the choice of therapy. We have limited treatment options, and there is a huge unmet need for those patients. All the current available therapies we had in the past had roughly around 30% chance, and they work around probably a year or two. When we look at patients with lower-risk MDS, actually most of them stay as lower-risk MDS. One-third of those patients may eventually progress to acute myeloid leukemia or higher-risk MDS. But when we look at the cause of mortality and morbidity, more than half of those patients is directly related to the anemia and the manifestations of the cytopenia. The second most common cause of mortality and morbidity among lower-risk MDS patients are cardiovascular events, which probably also correlate with the anemia and the interplay between the anemia and the other comorbidities. Particularly, majority of MDS patients are in their 60s and 70s. We also have looked at the severity of the anemia, and there is correlation between the severity anemia and outcomes, obviously. But unfortunately, even patients that we label as moderate or severe anemia are undertreated in general. Many of those patients just receiving blood transfusions or erythroid stimulating agents. Now, erythroid stimulating agents are reasonable first step for management for patients that are mostly anemic. There are different formats of erythropoietin, short acting. Nowadays, there are biosimilars. There is long acting darbipoietin. It's really a matter of dosing which ones to use. However, one could predict the chances of response easily by checking the endogenous serum EPO level for those patients. And those patients that have less than 500, and some studies refer to less than 200 endogenous serum EPO level, who are not heavily transfusion dependent, receiving less than two units every, every month, may have good chance of response. However, if a patient has endogenous serum EPO level more than 500, or they are receiving more than two units of blood every other week or monthly, then those patients have less than 10% chance of response. So we typically recommend starting somewhere equivalent of 40 to 60,000 international unit of erythropoietin. This is different dosing than used in renal failure. 
we try that for somewhere around six to eight weeks. If there is a response, we continue. If not, then we start thinking of moving to the next step. In general, around 40% of the patients will respond to erythroid-stimulating agents for a duration of a year, year and a half. There is around 40 to 50% of the patients what we call as primary resistance that will not have a response from the get-going. Unfortunately, we see a lot of patients that had not had a good response to erythroid-stimulating agents, and they continue with that. In general, patients have to have either transfusion independency or an increase in the hemoglobin of one and a half grams that's associated with improvement in the quality of life of patients to call that a response to erythroid-stimulating agents. But once they stop working or if it did not work, then that's usually an indication to start thinking of next treatment option. We do have some options, and now our armentarium had been expanded with newer therapies like lispatercept. There is a drug approved called lenalidomide for patients with deletion 5Q, lispatercept particularly for patients with ring sideroblasts, and also we use hypomethylating agents, azacitidine or decitabine, especially if patients have concomitant neutropenia or thrombocytopenia. Well, although advances have been made in the treatment of anemia in patients with MDS, there remains a significant unmet need for new and better treatment options for patients with ESA refractory transfusion-dependent MDS. One such option, which you already mentioned, is uh, lispatercept. Would you discuss recent data related to lispatercept and its significance in the day-to-day management of ESA refractory LRMDS? Absolutely. Thank you again for the question. So lispatercept was actually the first drug to be approved for MDS after almost a decade of not having any new therapies for MDS. Lispatercept is what we call erythroid maturating agents. Erythropoietin works on early steps of erythropoiesis, promoting early erythroid differentiation. However, lispatercept works on the terminal erythroid differentiation. It's a fusion trap protein that neutralizes TGF-beta ligands which turned to be a negative regulator of the terminal erythroid differentiation. So this drug will release the terminal erythroid differentiation blockage that we encounter in MDS. The drug was tested in several studies in phase one, phase two, and then in a large study called the Medalist, where patients with lower risk MDS with ring sideroblasts that were transfusion dependent were randomized to receive lispatercept. It's an injection given subcutaneously every three weeks versus placebo. And the study met the primary endpoint where around one-third of the patients had sustained transfusion independency with lispatercept. And that led to the approval of the drug. One of the major important predictors of response was really the magnitude of transfusion burden at the baseline. So the less the transfusion burden was, the patients were more likely to respond, and that those response rates could approach as high as 70%. The treatment in general is well tolerated. As I mentioned, it's an injection every three weeks. There was fatigue observed in patients, particularly during the first few cycles, some GI toxicity, peripheral edema, but 95% of the patients were able to continue in treatment. No concerns of increased risk of AML transformation or transformation to higher risk. So based on the data from this medalist study, the FDA approved lispatercept for patients after ESA failure lower-risk MDS with ring sideroblasts. Now, there had been updates and longer-term follow-up 
on use of loss batercept. Dr. Pierre Fino presented data at the European Hematology Association in 222, providing longer update, and the data still remains encouraging when we look at patients that had sustained transfusion independence, which means 16 weeks or more. Around one-third of patients with Lusbatercept enjoyed that transfusion independency. And when we look at the cumulative duration of response, it almost approaches 80 weeks. So those patients will stop needing blood transfusions. And there were some patients that needed some blood transfusion for different events, such as bleeding, hospitalization, etc. But when we look at the cumulative duration of response, it's almost approaching 81 or 82 weeks. There were also some interesting data presented at the last American Society of Hematology meeting of longer-term follow-up and the impact of such treatments on overall survival and progression-free survival. Dr. Santini from the Italian group presented data on overall survival with the Spatercept, demonstrating that responders enjoyed longer survival with the treatment. This is also suggestive that treatment of anemia is very important and in the elimination of the anemia and transfusion dependency could be an important factor in patients with lower risk. In the same presentation, it was demonstrated that patients that had lower risk disease using a classification system we use called International Prognostic Scoring System, that those patients with very low risk had a survival advantage with the treatment. Other data also had looked at the predictors of response and the dose-dependent relationship. Dr. Platzbecker from the German group presented this data at the last American Society of Hematology meeting as well. Again, demonstrating that patients that are not heavily transfusion-dependent, suggesting that we should start those treatments earlier at the time of ESA failure, had higher responses. The other important point that a lot of patients will need dose escalation. Typically, we start with one milligram per kilogram subcutaneous injection every three weeks. After two doses, we go up to 1.33 and then up to 1.75. So there is a relation between the responses and the dosing. The low transfusion burden patients may respond to lower doses. However, the intermediate or high transfusion burden patients will often need higher doses to achieve the response. So now also we've shared our real-world data and experience after the approval of the drug. So last year, I also presented myself data on real-world experience with almost 114 patients treated with lospatercept. What was unique to this, that it included patients that had prior therapies, such as hypomethylating agents of lenalidomide, which was not part of the medalist study. And indeed, we saw responses very similar to what was reported in the medalist study, around 40% of the patients responding, transfusion burden being the most important predictor of response, needing to escalate the dosing. And we also observed that responses were seen after exposure to hypomethylating agents or lenalidomide. However, those patients after hypomethylating agents failure or lenalidomide failure tend to have higher burden of the disease. Dr. Mukherjee also presented data from real-world experience in the same meeting, again, showing the same data that patients that are low transfusion burden will have a very high chance of response in the real world. Patients that are highly transfusion dependent will most often need the highest dose of the Lusbatercept. However, both sets of data from real-world were reassuring, showing that the same responses observed in the medalist were observed in real-world experience. Our group also had been interested looking in combining lusbatercept with erythroid stimulating agents. So as we said, erythroid stimulating agents work on early stage, while the lusbatercept works on the later stage of erythropoiesis, so it makes sense to combine them. So we took patients that had ESA failure, had lusbatercept treatment, and had lusbatercept failure, and we combined them 
And indeed, in around one third of the patients, we observe that we can gain the response, suggesting there is some synergistic or additive activity having the combination. And that's now subject of several trials. So a lot of improvement in, in this treatment option, a longer follow-up, data demonstrating that the medalist results were duplicated in real life, and this provides a new option for our patients with lower-risk MDS. The landscape for management of myodysplastic syndromes, however, will be changing based on data presented at both ASCO 2023 and EHA 2023 meeting. There were two studies presented at those meetings, the command study with Luspatercep, just published in the Lancet Journal, and the eMERGE study addressing role of MTListat in lower-risk MDS. So I'll provide a brief overview of those trials, uh, starting with the Luspatercep. This was the command study where Luspatercep was compared to erythropoietin alpha for treatment of anemia in erythroid-stimulating agents, naive lower-risk MDS patients requiring blood transfusions. This study was presented at both ASCO and EHA meeting this year. The study included lower-risk MDS patients that were transfusion-dependent between two to six units of blood every eight weeks and no prior ESA treatment. And patients were randomized between receiving Luspatercept, similar to the dose administered in the MEDALIS trial, or erythropoietin. The primary endpoint was a robust red blood cell transfusion independence for 12 weeks or more, as well as a hemoglobin increase more than 1.5 grams per deciliter. The study met the primary endpoint in the intent-to-treat analysis. The responses were doubled, almost 59% with Luspatercept compared to 31% with erythroid-stimulating agent. When we looked at subsets, the Luspatercept did better than ESA in most of the subsets of note, particularly in patients with endogenous serum EPO level between 200 to 500, the response to erythroid stimulating agents was 12% versus 41%. And in addition to the higher rate of response, the durability was more pronounced or doubled with Luspatercept, where the median duration was almost around 127 weeks compared to 7 seven week, which is historically what we expect with erythroid stimulating agents. So doubling the response rates and doubling the duration of response. In terms of safety profile, there were no new adverse events reported in the command study that were not reported in the medalist study. Fatigue, diarrhea, some edema were the most common. There was no signal of higher risk of progression to AML or higher-risk MDS, there was no difference in the mortality between the two arms. So in conclusion, the command study achieved its primary endpoint. It demonstrated that Luspatercept is superior to erythroid-stimulating agent and ESA-naive transfusion-dependent lower-risk MDS, doubling the response 60% roughly versus 30%, and doubling the duration with a predictable and manageable safety profile. Hopefully, this data will lead to moving Luspatercept to the upfront management of patients with lower-risk MDS. The next trial that will probably shape the landscape of management of lower-risk MDS was with MTListat. This was also presented at ASCO by Dr. Zidane and at the EHA meeting by Dr. Platz-Packer. MTListat is a telomerase inhibitor. Telomerase is overactive in MDS cells with telomere being shortened. So the idea is affecting the MDS clone 
With this, in the phase two, there was around 42% transfusion independency reported with durable responses. So the first three, the eMERGE trial, randomized patients that were lower risk MDS, those were patients had ESA failure or low chance of response to ESA. They were transfusion dependent, and they were randomized into two-to-one fashion between Imteristat, given once a month IV infusion versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was eight-week red blood cell transfusion independency. The study met the primary endpoint where around 40% of the patients became red blood cell transfusion independent compared to 15% in the placebo. And when we assessed the durable responses more than 24 weeks, around one-third of the patients with Imteristat achieved that durable response. The median duration of response was around a year compared to 13 weeks in the placebo. So again, many of those patients that achieve a response, those are durable responses with Imteristat. The median hemoglobin increase was around 3.6 grams per deciliter. This is probably the second most increase in hemoglobin reported in MDS studies. In terms of safety profile, the most common adverse event was a grade 3 or 4 neutropenia thrombocytopenia expected seen typically in the second or third week where patients will have an average of one or two weeks cytopenia. Those were manageable by those reductions and delays and did not lead to high rate of febrile neutropenia. Also in the same meeting, there was another presentation on the potential disease modification of Imteristat. Dr. Santini presented data on the cytogenetic and molecular responses with Imteristat in this study. So around one-third of the patients had a cytogenetic response, including almost 20% having a complete cytogenetic response. Also, there was observation in the reduction in the variant allele frequency in patients treated with Imteristat in genes such as SF3B1, TET2, DNMT3A, and SXL1, where almost around one-third of the patients had reduction in the variant allele frequency of those mutations, 50% or more. And there was a nice correlation between the reduction in the allele burden as well as the hematological responses in terms of transfusion independency and hemoglobin increase. We also looked at different biomarkers, including reduction in the ring sideroblasts, cytogenetic responses, reduction in the allele burden of the mutations mentioned, and all of those correlated with the eight-week transfusion independency, 24-week transfusion independency, as well as the hemoglobin increase. So those data are really exciting, suggesting that the landscape of low-risk MDS will change with Luspatercept moving to the upfront of the management and Imteristat becoming an option for patients with lower-risk MDS after ESA or Luspa failure. Thank you very much. P.A. Platt and Dr. Kamrakji, thank you for reviewing this data and exciting data with us today. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Dr. Kamrakji and P.A. Platt for joining me and sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you. It was my pleasure and hopefully the audience will find this helpful. Thank you very much too for having us. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.